What would an upgrade to our current democracy actually look like? And how would version 2.0 actually work? Well, that's exactly what I got into today with Dahi Gleason. Now, Dahi is a member of the Flux Party, and this is not just a political party, this is more of a political movement, a movement towards upgrading our current democracy and how it works. This is a fascinating conversation, because all too often, when somebody complains about the fact that democracy doesn't work, and everybody reduces the conversation back to, what would you rather have, communism or dictatorship? But this is a really interesting conversation where we held space for what could an upgrade actually look like? And it's fascinating to see how the Flux Party is actually making that happen and putting that proposition forwards. So enjoy Dahi. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Dahi Gleason. Dahi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Dahi, you are a member of the Flux. Um, is it a political party? Yes, it is a political party, among other things. Uh, yes, and that's what we're going to dive into. And people become more self-explanatory in a minute why I asked that. But one of the things I really want to dive into today is, is exploring a bit more about Flux and it's, uh, and the questions it raises about democracy. So at a top level, can you tell me what Flux is about? Sure thing. Flux is primarily and at the core a political movement. Right. That is built around philosophy, mm -hmm. around how we do democracy and how we do uh, decision making on a societal societal level. Mm. So at the very core of it, we have our philosophy, which we have called issue-based direct democracy. Yes. And around, into yeah, what and around that core philosophy, we now have a foundation, yep. the Flux Foundation. And, from, and the Flux Foundation is where we start with building out political parties and doing the work that we're trying to do, which is you know, one of our catchphrases for the last few years was to upgrade democracy. Yes. So I guess the first question that springs to mind for me is, if you're talking about upgrading democracy, what are some of the challenges, issues, problems that are, that are occurring currently, which has caused you and others to think about where we can go? Mm. Now that is that, that could be the the opening for a twelve hour lecture series. Yeah. Okay. But we'll keep it succinct then. So to keep it succinct, top five points. Yeah. So <laughs> the idea that we, when we talk about the, when we use the word democracy, yeah. it means different things to different people. Yeah. And that's one of the first challenges that we have. But something that a lot of people can agree on is this form of representative democracy that we've come to know, where we elect people to be our representatives and we send them off to parliament to make decisions that represent our best interests. Yes. Representative democracy. Yep. Now, that system came about you know, after, you know, a couple of, a little while after the printing press in terms of, you know, the innovation that resulted from a particular mm. technology. We've been, as, a, as humans and as societies, we've been organizing ourselves in various ways for thousands of years, and the Greeks were the ones who, I suppose, trialed the first versions of what we now call modern democracy 
Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a long time before we got round to developing parliaments and more formal structures, which we currently associate with our concept of democracy. Hmm. But just sticking with the, rep the, more, the more recent version of democracy, this representative model, it was born at a time when parliaments were a couple of days horse ride away from yes. where people lived. So it made sense for people to go, okay, we need to send someone, one of us, off to parliament to represent our best interests. We'll only choose one person and we'll make sure that they are the best qualified, yeah. best educated, somebody who can relate to all of our experiences and mm. someone that we can trust in, knowing that when they go off to parliament, they will make decisions that we know will, you know, will do right by us yeah, in the long term. Represent us. Yeah. And in concept, great, great idea. And that's where, that's where the innovation was. That's where the technology allowed it to be mm. at that time. The technology being horses. The technology being <laughs> horses, uh, you know, printing press, yep. where, uh, you know, where light was. But predominantly, it, what we're talking about when we talk about politics and democracy is really about how do we organize information to make decisions on a mass level? Yeah. It really is about the organization of information because if you make decisions with bad information, yes. you are by default making bad decisions. Yes. So unless you have the information set up in a way uh, when you are going to make your decision, the whole exercise is futile. Yeah. So you do that with the best, with whatever the best technology you have at the time, whether it's a mail system that can send letters to people mm. or whether it's Deliver, sending people on horseback to go represent you. You do the best you can do to ensure that the right information is in the right place with the right people when the decision needs to be met. Mm. And just so we're clear, the decisions by and large are where are our resources deployed? The, the, and how the, are they yeah, managed? That's an example of, yeah. of, of a decision. Of a, of a and decision. from a societal level, exactly. It, yeah. the, the key question is we all look around at each other and go, what what are we doing here yes what and the first thing we need to figure out is like what are we doing and then we figure out okay how are we going to do it yes and the conversation about like you know why are we here and like the core like that's something that tends to happen more at a kind of deeper cultural psychological level among people. philosophical yeah yeah but the the looking around what are we doing and how are we going to do it that's really what we're talking about when it comes to political decision making right at a societal level. So at that time, sending people on horseback to parliament to make decisions, that's fine. Fast forward, fast forward a couple of hundred years, and yeah. a lot has happened in that time. And one of the things that's happened in that time is that people have come to realize that we now have certain bottlenecks and we have certain places in these information flows mm. where it all comes down to a single point of influence. Yes. And given the scale and I suppose the importance of some of these decisions and the consequences of these decisions, mm. people are incentivized to influence uh, the environment in whatever way they can to bring about a decision that suits them. Yeah. And th this, you know, this is something that we all do. Like this is just it's an inevitability if if there is something that would bring about a better set of circumstances for me, I'm going to use my influence to try and bring about that better circumstances. Yes. Self-interest, like it is, it's undeniable, yeah. undeniably common among all humans. And 
to a large extent, we have harnessed self-interest. I say harnessed there because mm. if self-interest if self is left uh, unchecked and yes. unharnessed, it can pull people in all sorts of directions. So yeah. we need to put some constraints around our self-interest and ensure that we, you know, that we use it to propel or pull ourselves forward, but not to drag us off yes. into strange places. So we have self-interest and people starting to realize, mm. well, if, if we're organizing our decision-making systems in a way where ultimately it is, it is dependent on these, per these people in, in parliament, a really good place for me to exert my influence would be to try and influence how these people make decisions in Parliament. Yes. And what we've seen over time, one of the big complaints among people who are dissatisfied with democracy is that they feel that the relationship between the decision maker in Parliament and them as the person who is being represented they feel that that relationship has become distorted mm. somewhat. Mm. And we can see examples of this distortion in the role that political, like donations, for example, yes. uh, play in shaping how decisions are made in Parliament, where you know, the, the catchphrase of democracy is, you know, all votes are equal. Yes, all votes are equal when it comes to elections and when it comes to choosing people who will go represent you in Parliament. Mm. But after that, there's a whole other game that's played in terms of what will influence what these people in Parliament, yeah. how will they do things? What, will, what do they think is more important? What do they prioritise? What do they mm. perceive as being the right thing to do? And the disconnect then that is over time create, like if that feedback loop, and I'll talk about feedback loops in a while, if that feedback loop is distorted or broken somewhat, or, over, not present. or not present, exactly, over time you will find that the relationship between the representative and the people who are supposed to be represented could diverge even further and mm. further. And that's what, that's, I won't say that's what we're seeing everywhere, but that is definitely a, a very common experience for people where they feel that political decision makers are out of touch with what they the citizens want and that the mechanism for ensuring appropriate feedback between those decisions and the consequence of the decisions is not working properly it's interesting that because um like a real a real pro um, democracy person might say well then you just vote them out and vote somebody else in but that doesn't necessarily influence your systemic problem that you were talking about. Of there's this whole other game that is played when it comes to the decision making that we vote the decision makers to go and do. And the other thing I find that we don't tend to do is, particularly when we come back around to election period, is reconcile, this is what you said, that's why you got into office, what did you do during the time? And how does that stack up with what you said you did at the start? The problem that you're alluding to there is, is the, I always use the term incentives when trying to mm. explain behavior. Someone once before said, you know, show me the, show me the incentives and I'll explain the behaviors. Mm. And what we have in our current political system is Politicians and political parties who are incentivized to win elections. 
Correct. That's that's the game. It's yeah. win elections. And yes. once you win the election, then you're in parliament, then you can figure out, you can play the other game. Play the game for four or five years, however long you're but, in for. And when that term ends, you go back to playing the game of getting elected. Yeah. So the way that you get elected is by telling people what they want to hear. Yes. Because there is a finite day, like there is a set day when everybody is going to turn up at the polls or a set you know, set of weeks, a period of time where people will turn up at the polls and make their decision. And all you have to do is, in the lead up to that. So in the six to nine to 12 months before. Yeah, you, you tell people what it is they want to hear by, you know, by advertising campaigns, making promises, going out, mm. doing the, you know, the, the local engagement work, listening to people's concerns and going, yes, I agree with you. You'll vote for me. I'll help you out. And people are like, yes, that's what I want. I want I feel somebody. Like he understands me. Yeah. Or she understands me. I want somebody just like this person who will listen to me and then will go and do something about it. Yes. But once the election is over, it's a whole, as I said, it's a whole other yeah. game now. And what we have when people. So I could make any kind of promise yeah. to anybody in the world and say, once I get into Parliament, I will do. This, I will ensure everybody gets a, a goldfish, Yeah. for example. Now, I can say that, but when I get mm. into Parliament, there, there will be a whole other set of constraints and people with different ideas about, no, we shouldn't be giving people goldfish, we should be giving them pet rabbits instead. Yes. And there's no way that nobody's getting goldfish on my watch. I will go out of my way to ensure that that doesn't happen. Yes. So all of a sudden, the, the best intentions of the person who was going to go and deliver a promise runs into the reality of the constraints of the political system. Now, yeah. I point this out because th there's this trope that all politicians are bad and all politicians break promises. Complete rubbish. Yes. The vast, the vast, vast majority of people who are involved in politics are in it for good reasons. They, mm. want, to make, they want to make the world a better place. Yeah. And they have ideas about how they think they can do that. But then what happens is those ideas and that desire to make the world a better place runs into conflict with a system that is not necessarily designed to bring about the best outcomes all of the time. Yes. Yes, that makes sense. Now, so as an example as to one example of how we can bring about suboptimal outcomes. Yep. We'll say we have a parliament where we're going to elect 100 people into parliament. And we're going to say, this parliament will operate on a majority. So for laws to pass, we need at least 51 people to agree to whatever it is we're going to do, yep. or else it won't get passed. Now, most people, well, one of the questions that I love to think about all the time is, what is something, I, what is something that somebody could say or state that would get unanimous agreement among people? Mm. Like that everybody would agree on. And you know, I, I bring it back to very simple things like the sky is blue. Yes. And even to say something like the sky is blue, there will always be people who will go, actually, it's, it's, it's something else. Like it's either a more refined version of that. Like blue is not an accurate yeah. description. Some days it's white when it's cloudy. Yeah. And there's some people who will just take the position, if you, if you believe the sky is blue, I'm going to say it's green. The sky yeah. is green and I, I hold that position because I, I just have the belief that everything you say is wrong or incorrect because of the, 
the, the basis of your ideology, of your thinking or where you're coming from. I don't like the way you think, therefore anything you say, so, I, will, I will go against it. So getting a majority in Parliament can be quite difficult. Mm. And they say that one of the ways that you get a majority in Parliament and one of the things that's involved in politics is this idea of compromise. Mm. Now, compromise is one of those words that we generally have a positive association with. It means, okay, we're both going to let go of something in order to work towards a bigger uh, mutual goal. Yes. And you know, it's about creating win-win situations. But sometimes compromise actually creates suboptimal outcomes. Yes. And so a very simple example that I give to people is if we were trying to decide what to have for dinner, and we'll say, we'll say now there's only 10 people, smaller, and one group of the 10 people, three people say, we want to have, pa we want to have pasta and tomato sauce. And three people say, we want to have raw vegetables. And three other people say, we want to have ice cream. And there's one other person who says, I want to have a salad. Right. Now, everybody might be satisfied with having a salad, but there's only one person out of the, only 10% of the people have said that they want to have a salad. Mm. The, the, the working majority is split between pasta, ice cream, and, and raw vegetables. Yeah. And so what happens is the ice cream people and the raw vegetable people say, we both, like, we definitely don't want pasta for dinner. Yeah. Okay, what we'll do is we'll come to a compromise. We're going to have raw vegetables and ice cream. Yeah. And that means that we both get a little bit of what we want. Yes. And we're definitely not getting the thing that we don't want. Yes. But they end up eating broccoli flavored ice cream. Yeah. Which is what nobody wanted originally. Yes. And it's just one of these examples of we're trying to get a working majority inside a party parliamentary mm. system. There's not much go forwards, is there? There's more trying to prevent. It, yes, but we hear the expression, uh, you know, the, the least worst option. Yes. And that's often what people are trying to do. They're trying to mm. engineer things so that you know, we just want to ensure that we don't end up with the worst option. And yeah. so we'll compromise and do things to ensure that we reach some sort of, uh, some sort of position where we're both you know, reasonably happy or we're satisfied that it's not the worst outcome. And hopefully next time we'll be able to make more progress. Mm. But you know, now that's a very simplified example to describe the sort of deadlock and suboptimal outcomes that can come about from uh, from party political systems in Parliament. It's not to say that it's always like that, yeah. but the nature of political parties and why they were created and what they stand for and what they represent is, you know, it's often around protecting a certain set of ideas and or a certain set of ideologies or beliefs from, from attack. Yes, and at all costs. Yes, whereas one of our fundamental kind of, uh, one of our core beliefs, or one of the core ideas that we believe is really important is the idea that, it, that ideas should be tested mm. and that you shouldn't be going into, into making decisions to ensure that you get your way. Mm. We should be optimizing for how do we create the best outcomes? Mm. 
And so sometimes, going back to the dinner example, if we couldn't find, if we couldn't get a working majority, sometimes the best outcome would be for people to go, do you know what? We're going to give this, the ice cream crew, we're going to go, do you know what? No ice cream tonight. We'll just side with the vegetables people or the pasta people and ensure that everybody gets to eat something that's, that's palatable. And nutritious. And nutritious. But often there's this thing, there's this notion, this feeling that you have to hang, you can't let go too mm. much because otherwise what do you stand for? Mm. And while it's good to stand for things, like you know, everybody should have core values underpinning the way that they think, but you should always be open to update, you know, to up, I won't say updating the value. Values change slowly over time, but any of the thinking that's overlaid on top of values, mm. you should absolutely be going into every situation trying to go, how do I make my thinking better? Yeah. How do we actually work towards improved outcomes as opposed to me working towards me, me and us trying to win? Yes. And so much of what is happening in politics now is about one side winning and one side losing as opposed to us thinking, what, what do we need to we'll do deliver. To, make, yeah, to make incremental progress over time that we can build upon and actually make real step change mm. over time? Mm. And I think what you've explained there will be the source of many people's disappointment and angst and anxiety about what we see on the TV from our politicians when we think they're making these decisions and it just does not reflect me and my life and, and what have you. Mm. So I asked you the question, what are the issues from which the Flux Party was born out of? Yeah. That's, okay, so that's it in a nutshell. The core thing more. really is why aren't we applying the, the sort of thinking from the scientific method where we form a hypothesis? Yeah. I'm just taking a step back. Uh, like this enlightenment thinking, you know, what we now call you know, uh, fallibilism and the scientific method is really about... enlightenment 1700s. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's about form a hypothesis, you know, gather evidence and, you know, so the hypothesis being, I think that it, if I... If I drop this lid, or if I let go of this lid, it will fall straight down because gravity will act on it. Hmm. And so you do a test, and if it passes the test, you go, okay, that theory holds up. Yep. If, however, I let go of it and the lid stayed in the air, we'd go, okay, my hypothesis is not correct. I need to modify something about this and hmm. update it to make it more accurate. And that's, that sort of thinking has stood us really well to make progress in so many aspects of society. Yes. But when it comes to political decision making, what we sometimes tend to do is, okay, everybody, the red team have decided that we are going east. Prosperity and success is that way. Yes. Okay, let's go. And we all start marching off to the east. It's quite tribal ethnocentric. And then after a certain amount of time, we realize, oh, we're not as prosperous and as successful yeah. as we thought we wanted. The blue guy said we should have gone west. And so everyone turns around and starts marching back in the other direction and making very little progress over time. As opposed to going, we figured out based on where the mountains are that, 
heading in this direction for a certain period of time is our best is our best guess at this point in time. Yeah. And we should be looking to make incremental changes to yeah, updating our hypothesis along the way as opposed to just taking everything, throwing it out, starting again, going in the other direction based on an election cycle. Yes. So core to our philosophy is the idea as well of testing ideas, yep. trying to make incremental changes that make things better, like making small improvements over time. And if you do that consistently enough, you will make lots of significant big improvements. Yes. So is that, so how does this now translate into Flux, the party Flux? Yes. The new, the new way of doing democracy. So our, because our, our philosophy is about trying to enhance the, let's call it the, the optimization algorithms of mm. how we make decisions, it requires, it requires a feedback mechanism. So that if you're going astray, you need some way to figure out that you're going astray. Right. Now, the way that we do that currently is once every three to four years, we ask everybody in the population, are we going the right direction? Yep. And people say, yes, no, yes, no. And we end up in the situation that I kind of just described there. We are of the opinion that we would get much better outcomes if we were to refine that feedback mechanism and get more feedback along the way mm. in terms of all of, the all of the legislation that is crafted and deployed during a parliamentary term, that we should be getting feedback mm. on each one of those. And where does the feedback come from? Ultimately, it has to come from the citizens for yep. whom the parliament is created and mm. the representatives, uh, you know, and the representatives are there to look after the interests of the people of the of the country yeah and by having a more dynamic and refined feedback loop there we can you know we can make smaller incremental improvements to to legislation and not be so dependent on just trying to pick which which general big direction are we going to try and go in mm. over the next few years mm. so the way that we want to do that is by giving people the ability to interact with the legislation that comes before Parliament. Right. So as an example, there are, let's take any, let's take a, the, the government of the day in Australia, the, the Liberal Party. They have a large amount of support across a range of their policies, mm -hmm. but there are policies that exist inside their, uh, inside uh, their group of policies that people don't agree with. But we, like, I describe the current system sometimes as a set menu. You have to choose from the set menu, menu A or menu B, and mm. that determines what starter, main course, and dessert you get. Yeah. Whereas we're proposing a more a la carte menu, right. where you get to choose, I like, instead of picking a team, that you actually pick the issues that matter to you, and you support the issues, or you oppose the issues. Mm. So imagine this, rather than, imagine at election time, if you were going into an election booth, and rather than picking names or a party on the ballot paper that you were saying, you were being asked, how do you feel about taxes? How do you feel about environmental policy? Right. How, what do you think about, uh, about the healthcare system? Hmm. And looking at, issue, looking at uh, policy and legislation on an issues basis, would, 
the question that I always like to ask people is, would you actually end up voting for the same party or people that you end up voting for, or would going through it on an issue by issue basis actually create a little bit more nuance that would divorce you from someone over here and maybe mm. have you more aligned with someone who you didn't expect to be aligned with? Yes. And tools like there's a, a tool called Vote Compass that is rolled out by the ABC and other groups around election time where people are asked a range of questions around various policies and mm. then they're told actually you would be most aligned with this particular candidate or this right, particular yes. party. And a lot of times it takes people by surprise yeah. because they have inherited uh, their preference of who yeah. they think they support. My dad always voted for. Yeah, that, that thing yeah. of, my fa like we are a Labour family or we are a Liberal yeah. family. We've always voted Labour, we've always voted Liberal. Mm. And I always encourage people to think, you know, think about the issues Yes. and ask yourself, does this party that you're voting for, do they actually represent your position on these Please issues do. and when, when you start getting into the nuance? And yeah. this is where people end up making that kind of compromise right. where they go, well, look, I like, I like six, of, six of the things that the, the blue guys are talking about. I'm not too keen on numbers seven, eight, nine, and 10, but one and two are really important to me. So look, I'll stick with these. I'll stick with that. Stick with these. Even yeah. if three, four, and five come with it. Yeah. yeah. As opposed, whereas our philosophy is about, you know, ignore Ignore the party affiliation, ignore the yeah. colours. It's about, it's about the issues because ultimately it's the issues that, that, that shape the policy and the policy that will shape the legislation and the legislation that creates the outcomes that impact people's lives. And then the impact on people's lives is felt and, and then they update. If they, if they feel that they have made an incorrect decision, people can update. So one of the criticisms when we start talking about our idea, people say something like this, oh, with that idea, everybody would just vote to get rid of taxes. Now, I don't think that that's true. I think that the majority of people are actually, you know, clued in enough to know that if they were to vote to get rid of taxes, that the cumulative net effect of that would be detrimental to the vast majority of people. Hmm. But even if for, for some reason, enough people thought, we're, yeah, let's vote to get rid of taxes. Knock it off. Yeah. yeah. Over time, things would happen. They would yeah. notice, oh, why are the roads gone so bad? Like, yeah. why, why, are the, why is there no roof on the school? Yeah. Why, why is the hospital only open for two hours a day mm, and queues out the door? And then they'd be like, do you still feel the same way about how you voted on taxes? And people would go, actually, mm. I'm going to update that. And that's the feedback mechanism that I talk about, that yeah. if, if people make decisions where they're connected to the outcome of it, and if they're responsible for- the outcome for, is felt. Yeah, and when that outcome is experienced by them, if they made a bad decision, people will change their mind. Whereas what we have at the moment is, people make a decision to choose a team to represent them, and then the team goes to parliament hmm. and makes decisions on these people's behalf, and the people feel the consequences. But when it comes to changing their mind or trying to update things at that point in time, when it comes to election time, mm. they'll either have been, you know, get all this information that will just kind of make them forget about the bad decision that they once made, or 
things will the the policy and the parties will be crafted in such a way to minimize any ability to actually change that it's the it's the breakdown between the decision makers and the people who bear the consequence mm. of the decisions yes so listening to you a couple of questions now um so who if i was to go to the booth and vote on issues who sets the list of issues in in, in a, are you talking about in a hypothetical situation yep. or under the model that we're talking about under the model yeah. you're talking about so who would set the issues yeah and then the next thing as i work it through in my head um is so you'd select you know let's arbitrarily say there's 40 issues we boil it down to eight for the next period of time that we're going to work on them i presume this is roughly how it may work and then some one, some body is going to need to put at least version 1.0 of the policy to react to the issue. I, I think before I get into answering this, yeah. I'll take a step back and explain yeah, yeah. like the fundamentals of issue-based direct democracy yeah. and how it works. And the answers to that question will come about yes. in that explanation. So we've established that issue-based direct democracy is about issue, it's issue-based. Yes. So it's about choose it's about looking at issues the direct democracy part of it is you know direct democracy where people have a direct say on the issues mm. now it, direct democracy is a model that is used in number of places around the world but the most famous example is switzerland where yes. all the legislation that is that is passed in switzerland has to be essentially ratified by the people directly and they mm. vote on things from the canton local level all the way through to the federal level and their politicians are you know to a large extent you know administrative bureaucrats who, who do the who do the work of mm. crafting the legislation and making sure it work but the people ratify or shoot down the uh, yes. the various policies now that that works in switzerland where they have a long history of of direct democracy Doing and it is yeah. it is ingrained in their national psyche that mm. people have to do this but a lot of other people don't want to be actively involved in every decision that was another question i was going yeah. to come back to so this is where the concept of liquid democracy comes into it and we also use like the fullest expression of issue-based direct democracy incorporates liquid democracy which is where you can delegate if you if you're too busy to be up to date on all of the issues, you can delegate to somebody. And by that, you could delegate to your, to your friend who is super informed on things, mm. or you could potentially delegate to a, you know, a local representative or you know, an expert in a particular area. This is where you do have a local representative that plays a role, I suppose, yeah. P well, this is where, like when I say a local representative, I, I really mean more of a person who represents groups of people or you know, certain mm. ideas. Yeah. So we'll say, for example, if there was, if there was going to be a, we'll say the issue is taxes. Yeah. Are we going to keep taxes or get rid of them? Now, I'm, I'm going to say that I'm somebody who is not informed on things. I don't know what the right decision to make on this, but my friend Bryn, is really up to date on all this stuff. In issue-based direct democracy, 
I could delegate my voting authority to you. Yes. And on the condition that you make good decisions on my behalf, as soon as you start making bad decisions, I can revoke the delegation of authority yep. and either start making these decisions for myself or mm. delegate to somebody else. So what this does is it eliminates the, the burden, the cognitive burden associated with trying to stay up to date with things. And it also defaults somewhat to the model that we currently have where we, you know, currently we delegate to politicians, really. Yeah, we do. Saying, going to let you make that decision but on my you behalf. You go and get involved in this legislation and stuff and make the votes on my behalf. Yes. Now, but in our system, we that delegation is more dynamic. Yes. And if the currently you get to delegate once every three to four years, we're saying that you can delegate much more frequently than that. Yes. So there's the the direct the issues aspect, the direct democracy aspect, the liquid democracy of delegation, and the other aspect in its fullest extent is is a term that to date in our in our writings has been called vote swapping, but right. it has caused a little bit of a confusion and controversy. But it really is more about creating uh, an economic incentive, an incentive market for people to participate only on the issues that they care most about. Mm. So our, system, our philosophy, it doesn't necessarily want you to be participating in every single decision that comes across uh, that comes across the table. We, it asks you, what do you care most about? Like, if you could actually implement some changes, what would you like your voting capital to be assigned Focused to? On, yeah. And what this does is, it will, it will, you know, certain issues are going to be more important to more people than others. Yeah. And it will create a more competitive market for the controversial issues. And it will, but even more importantly, it will mean that. These smaller issues that only affect maybe a couple of thousand people, but that would dramatically improve their lives if implemented mm. and would have no detrimental effect on anybody else. It creates the space for these sorts of improvements to happen. Right. Because people could go, I, a great example that I, that I have is I have a friend who wasn't really interested in politics. And when it came time to like in the previous state election, the, the, Labour, uh, the Labour Party were bringing forward policy around mixed martial arts fighting right, in, yeah. in Western Australia, and it was going to essentially create legislation that would allow mixed martial arts and UFC to happen in, in Perth. And this, this, really, this was the thing that was going to make my mate's life better. This was the issue that yeah. he cared about. And he's like, all the rest of the stuff, he's like, I'm happy for, I'm happy with how everything else is going along, mm. but on this one issue, I want my, I want my preference on this to be felt. This is the only thing that I care about. Yes. And there was a lot of people who felt like that, and there was people who opposed it, but the the support for that was much greater than the opposition to it. The right. majority of people didn't really care. Didn't yeah. But those are the sorts of small improvements where. You know, it only affects a tiny number of people mm. on the on the positive side and on the negative side, and we you know we need to figure out we need to figure out you know which, do we want something like this to pass or not? If it is truly detrimental, the onus is on the people who feel the bad effects to convince other people, hey, you should care about this 
The mm. outcomes of this are really bad. Yes. There's 10,000 people who are going to support it. We need 11,000 people because it's bad. And then you have, a, you have an actual marketplace of ideas. You have people talking about the mm. merits of the issue, saying you should support this because it's good or bad. And you can look at this issue in isolation without having to compromise on or not necessarily compromise, without having to worry about bundling in 25 right. other issues yeah. with this, you can look at this one in isolation. If it creates good outcomes, we can let it pass. If it creates bad outcomes, we'll vote against it. Yeah. Now, that's kind of an overview of the philosophy. And a key thing that brings all of this together comes back to what I was talking about at the very start, uh, the technology that's available to us. Hmm. A, a philosophy like this with this level of nuance and interaction mm. would, was just not possible 100, 200 years ago. Yeah. It's only possible for us to entertain these sorts of ideas now with the advent of you know, smartphone technology and communications technology. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects that we're working, as well as the philosophy, we're mm. also working on developing technology to, you know, to give people the tools to participate right in this sort of way of working. Yeah. Because talking about the philosophy is nice. You know, it's a intellectually stimulating yeah, exercise, but how does it work in practice? And the way that it works in practice, and this is the, the hypothesis that we are testing, is that people now, people have smartphone technology. The yeah. like smartphone penetration is yeah. increasing year and year on year. And that is a, that's a tool. Like smartphones in and of themselves are neither good nor bad. There's no morality associated with it. It's how we choose to use them as a tool. And we believe that we have underutilized them as tools mm. for participating in the political process. And we're working on designing you know, an experience for people via their smartphones so that they can start to you know, initially become more aware of the issues, become, become more, or not the issues, become more aware of the, the legislation that's before Parliament, become more aware of how they can participate and express their support or opposition to issues. Yeah. And by bringing people into this, into this ecosystem, as we call it, by using these technological tools, we believe that over time, as more people start to participate, we will start to see certain things come to the fore. We'll, find, we'll start mm. to find out what's more important for people, what's less important, because we're removing the friction of yep. people expressing those preferences. Once upon a time, if you, got to, if you got to meet your local representative, you might get the chance to tell them one thing that you really cared about. Yes. And no local representative has the time, like in Perth, oh, yeah, for yeah. example, at lower house level, there's approximately, I think, somewhere in the region of 25,000 25, voters in each lower house region. If it takes 10 minutes to explain the issue that's important to you, that would be 250,000 minutes to explain to your representative the one issue that's yeah. important to you. We're taking that process and doing it in a way where we can aggregate all of that information so that the elected representatives will then know this is what the people who put me here actually care about. Mm. We have mass aggregated out on an individual issue or on a 
bill by bill, issue by issue level, and allowed people to express, you know, essentially their support or their opposition to it. And when we look at the big picture and aggregate all of the information, we can find out this is what they actually want. And my belief is that if we, if we can get enough people to use these tools, that we'll, fi you know, we'll find that for the vast majority of things, that the governments are doing a fine job. They are, you know, like, I, I'm not one of these people who's like, the government is wrong and everything. No, that's absolute rubbish. The government is generally correct. Yeah. Otherwise, people would be out, you know, throwing, you know, throwing things, throwing tomatoes, and like, the, the mm. animosity would be much greater. Governments generally get it right, but they're not really that good at figuring out where they're currently not getting it right. Hmm. And we think that by using this philosophy in conjunction with the technology and these tools, getting people to participate, expressing their individual preferences uh, in this ecosystem, and hmm. then aggregating it out, will start to reveal some places where, okay, this is where we can start to optimize. This is something that a lot of people care about that will have very few detrimental effects on everybody else. Let's optimize and fix this. Here's another one. And it will, it will just help us identify what, what are the issues and the things that people want to address that don't naturally fall inside the, the kind of the ideologically derived sets of policies that the major parties go to the election with. Yeah. So you've got a much more agile decision-making process that has the feedback through the smartphone. So ideally, you know, I'd be seeing an app, a secure app, where I would see the list of issues that are up for discussion, and then I could look into that, and then I could place my vote against one of the options about that, or I can defer it or swap it or things like that. The concern I have is that there's two, but they all they stem from one place. Is that technology is exponentially grown? Decision make de decisions are decisions have exponentially grown. The menu, the the list of options on a menu, has exponentially grown. Do you think that we, as everyday citizens, actually have the sense-making capacity even if we got our heads around what you're suggesting do we have the sense-making capacity and facilities to actually make some pretty reasonable decisions i mean without wanting to reduce what you're suggesting it it's making policy decision a little bit more free market and where we see other free markets, people will go to McDonald's and eat shit all day until they have these, yeah, sometimes until they die. And so one of the things, particularly, it's been a thread in the podcast of recent, is looking at people's individual sense-making capabilities. And I'm gonna be blunt, I think our current sense-making capabilities are pretty immature compared to the complexity we now find ourselves in. 
and our collective sense making is just not even on the track yet. You know, we have a we have a pandemic yet. Everyone seems to not want to get their shit together. And and part of it comes to you know people voting on what they want rather than what they need. And we've used the word nuance several times. And look, I feel this. So I got asked recently about doing this podcast and one of the responses was it will ruin you. And why is that? So because now I have, I have the mental space because I've trained myself over and over again to hold opposing thoughts, to understand nuance, delve into the nuance, spend some time thinking about it, discussing it, cogitating over it, journaling, and then trying it out and seeing how it goes. But I'm a real bloody minority in that sense. So what sort of level of transition do we need for the people on the other side of the smartphones in order to meet this amazing, I think it's amazing what you're proposing. My concern is, is that, you know, you and I, let's be honest, we're quite intelligent, middle-class white dudes. Um, but you, you put that out there and what's to stop everyone voting <laughs> free McDonald's every day? Absolutely nothing. Yes. And that, that is the beauty. What, yeah. what, what's to stop everybody from what's to stop everybody from going to McDonald's right now? Exactly. Nothing. Nothing. But, but does everybody go to McDonald's? Well, we have obesity problems, don't we? We, we, have, we have obesity problems, but not everybody goes to McDonald's. Yeah. We have mental health problems. We have suicide problems. You know, large amount of mental health problems stem from gut health. So people are not even drawing links between things that are quite obvious. And if you're putting out nuanced, because there would need to be, you know, nuanced responses to issues, it's people having the capacity to hold the nuance, hold the, 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 the tension of opposite and opposing ideas and, and having their own moral philosophy and measuring against that. Um, you know, we have influencing factors like, you know, what Facebook feeds give us. We've sort of seen the impact of that on recent elections, even in the US. Um, we, you know, even the basic media has a capacity to influence and shape. Um, so I, I love what you're saying. It's just, how do we transit? I mean, I think it's one country, I can't remember where it is, it's an Asian country where in the four weeks leading up to an election, all social media, everything is just switched off. And I just think that, you know, and you're forced to make your own proper decision. It's pretty radical, but you can see the higher order greatness of it. And I guess, yeah, we'll probably do, you would hope, I guess as I'm, as I'm talking this out, and that's part of what we do here is, is you know, you know there's a big leap of faith that we, as a human species, at some point will get our decision-making act together if given such a reign of free will where we go, fuck, maybe they're eating McDonald's all day, equivalent of these decisions. Like you say, with taxes, we kind of get to that wake-up point and things get a bit more real and we go, no, nah, no, nah, we, we, we can't do not paying taxes because they just can't drive to work and 
I got robbed the other day and nobody came around because there's no police. And I went to the hospital and there was no nurses. So, you know, but that's gonna be an enormous transition. Do you know what I mean? I, I look at the, at the reality of human nature, where it is today, and I, you know, I love ideas that will provoke and make us more responsible. It's how do we move from one place to another, the transition aspect of it. Do you give much thought to that? I, this, I, I hardly think about anything else in my life. <laughs> this, this is what I think about all the time. I, at the core, I think that people are more alike than, yeah. they are, than they are dissimilar. Mm. Around what things? Around, around if, if, we, if we take it at a very basic, if we, if we were to go across vast numbers of cultures, yes. and if we were to do a survey as to what people, like what do people want out of life yes. to make themselves you know, happy, happy or content? Yes. The things that people will respond with are very, very simple and similar. Yes. I would agree. People want people want to be safe. Yep. They want uh, you know they want they want a sense of connection. You know they want to be in a community or in a family or be around people. And they want those people to be safe and to be part of of their world. They want you know inside the safety thing. There's you know having food in your belly. Yeah. A, a roof over your head, and people want purpose. Yeah. So you're going through Maslow's hierarchy of needs there. Yeah, pr pr pretty much. Yeah. And that's that's common across I, I won't say it's it's not it's not a hard and fast, it's a mass generalization across mm. people. But I make that point in that I don't believe that people set out with the intention of I'm going to make decisions to destroy my life and the lives of everybody around me. No, exactly. Now However, people do make decisions that destroy their lives and destroy the lives of everybody around them. Hmm. But that's not to say that that is a, a rule that applies to everybody. Yes. I would say the rule that more generally applies is that people make decisions to improve their lives and the lives of people around them. Hmm. Where, where, the, 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 where that generalization starts to run into difficulty is when people have different ideas about what making life better means. Yes, which is why I brought up yeah. sort of moral life philosophy. Yeah, now, but, 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 that, but it's a really good place to start because mm. you and I might have very different ideas about what making life better means. Mm. But the fact that we're agreed that making life better is a worthwhile cause means like that instantly gives us way more common ground. Yes. Whereas if you were to say, I just want to watch the world burn and I don't care about any, anything else, I would go, okay, we have a, fundamental a huge difference. fundamental values yeah. difference here. Yes. So, so, so there, there's the, at the core of it, there is there's a values. Uh, and below, there's something even below values. I was thinking about this recently mm. and I was going, what is it? You know, the big question that's often asked is like, what are we doing here? What is the purpose of what we're doing? What is mm. the purpose of life? And, you know, questions like that are great to think about deep into the night, but they're very hard to actually get, you know, to get something that people will agree on and go, yes, that explains it. Now we all know what the purpose of life is. But something that I think is a, is a purpose that I could put to somebody and 
I think they'd have a hard time saying that, that it's not a worthwhile purpose. And that purpose is that we should be trying to build and create societies that give consciousness mm. the, great, the best chance of expanding, developing and flourishing for the longest time possible. Yes. Like, given what we know about being human, and yep. it's a very subjective experience for everybody, I would say we would all agree, all the people who have to make decisions would agree that it's better for, for consciousness to exist than for it not to exist. Hmm. There are people who will disagree with that, but generally it's something that we could say there is actually a fairly good, a fairly good basis upon which to work from there. Yeah. Okay, Think, saying that our underlying purpose or agree, you know, just for, for the sake of argument, something that we're generally agreed on for now is to create societies that give consciousness the greatest chance of flourishing and mm. developing. What does that entail? Yes. And there's a number of things then that, that start, this is, where that, this is where I think values then is the next level that comes onto that. Because if we start asking ourselves, okay, for consciousness to, flourish well what does that even mean what does that even and it means okay allowing humans animals the ecosystem as we currently inhabit it as a starting point let's try and not destroy it and let's try and not make you know let's we don't know what exists out outside of the planet earth for all we know planet earth and the humans that humans and animals and all the species that exist on it we are what's going on in the universe. Yeah. And I think that it's a fairly, you know, a fairly fundamental thing to say, hey, we should try and keep the lights on here mm. as long as possible until we figure out what we're doing. Yes. Because we're still, we're still in our infancy in terms of yeah. the longer journey. So that's the core. Then we have values built on top of that. And we can have disagreements about values. Yes. But if we're agreed that, hey, let's not let's not turn the lights off on this planet until we figure out what it is we're doing. Then we can have a conversation about values because I can say, well, your values are good for you, but they actually impact these people in this way and there's these consequences to it. And what we found over time is that societies generally uh, form around shared sets of values. Mm -hmm. and. It, it's a terrible, like it's one of these expressions that's used a lot that I don't like, you know, this thing, if you don't like it, go back where you came from, mm. right? <laughs> now, there's two sides to that expression. One, that one is a negative side where, it, where, pe where people go, I, I don't want to engage with any idea that's different to mine, therefore I insist that you just get out of here. Yeah, I don't want to engage this is with where anything. we are now with cancel culture and if you don't like it, defriend me and those sorts of things played out on social media. Yeah, now I, I don't think that that's, I think that's fine if, you know, a couple of thousand years ago when there's enough space in the world for everybody to go, hey, do you know what? Mm. I'm going to leave you over in that corner of the forest. Yeah. I, don't like, I don't like the way that you set up yeah. your, your structure. I'm going to go over here. Yeah. But, and for the rest of my life, we probably won't meet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, like, now the idea of telling yeah. people you have to go away, like that might work today, yeah. but tomorrow you're going to meet someone else who you disagree with, and you can't just keep telling people, "Hey, get yeah. out of, 
get out of my vicinity. Yeah. So we have to figure out a way to you know, have a conversation about values, figuring out, figuring how, how we can you know, align somewhat and develop those values over time. And this happens, like, and, and so while I was kind of uh, giving out about this idea of, you know, oh, that telling people to go back to where they came from is like a, you know, a bad idea, on the other side, there is an incentive that if you don't like the way people around you think, it creates the incentive for you to find, to go, you know, to actually go outside of your circles, to find other people who agree with what you think, and it encourages yeah, yeah, yeah. exploration. Yes. And which, which is a good thing. Mm. And so what, what happens over time? Like we'll say cultures tend, societies and nations and people tend to form around shared culture and and ingrained in that is the value is you know some subsets of the values that are reasonably shared and so mm. as such in australia we have a generally you know a generally good shared vision of what the good life means mm. now but if you were to go to saudi arabia for example a place that has a different set of cultural uh, different cultural depending it and as a result you know different values coming from that you will have a disagreement as to what the good life represents. Yeah. But that's that's not really a problem because, you know, Australia's here, Saudi Arabia, for example, is there, another country is there. Yeah. It only becomes an issue when, you know, when we're working on a global level and if there then becomes issues in relation to how these cultures uh, clash. But bringing it back to, you know, to the, the world that we inhabit generally, which is, you know, the... 50 kilometers around us in the country that we might live in. I believe that there is an awful lot more that we have in common than we have, uh, than we have in difference. The, where we do have differences, the, the, ch the challenge is how do we work our way through those differences? It's okay for people to have different opinions. It's yes. okay for us to disagree, but we just have to figure out how do we manage this? Yes. And at the moment we're, we are still quite immature in how we manage this. Like the, the default position, now, and this is where it's important because the default position or the one that we will fall back to, if we don't figure out how to manage our differences, what do we do? We resort to violence. Yes. And like, that's another thing that I think we can generally agree on, that if we get to is a point where we're, yeah, we're, if we're resorting to violence yeah. to resolve our differences, we're unlikely to make any real progress or the people who think mm. they're making progress it's only a matter of time before somebody does the violence thing better back, than you yeah and back at you back at you well not even like the back at you is one thing but doing it better than you and actually eliminating you from the from the equation so resorting to violence as a strategy yeah. is not something that will work in the long term so we have to figure out how do we start how do we start doing the sense making as a collective mm. in a more uh, yeah in a more nuanced way in a more advanced way and while yes there may be teething problems or there may be uh, a steep learning curve or there yeah. may be too much information for people I'm I'm firmly of the belief that the incentives are there the incentives are so strong for us to work hard on creating better shared outcomes that if you create the tools and if you give people the tools, we'll figure out how to use them. 
Yes. And so while I acknowledge the, the concerns that people that people raise about, oh, you know, people can't be trusted on this, that and the other. Mm. I acknowledge those concerns, but I don't I, I actually don't agree with them because mm. I've had the great fortune of you know traveling to you know 40 plus countries around the world, meeting people from all ranges of all different ranges of life. And I could probably count on one hand the people who I would who I would go, they might be bad people. Yes. Like bad. Yeah. Everyone else, mm. despite the, the difference in culture, the difference in belief systems, I would say fundamentally, if we were left, if we were left with the problem as to how to get along, we'd figure it out. Yeah. We would figure it out. And if as long as we agreed, what we don't want to do is resort to violence. We will commit to working with each other to try and resolving our differences, you know, focusing on the common ground of, of which there is way more mm. because we are at the core all humans. Everything that we think we know is mm. just stuff that we have absorbed from our environments and it, culture over time. Even listening to you, it, I can't help thinking that, you know, even if we take a broad brush, you know, the 80-20 rule, there's going to be 80% of stuff that most people fundamentally agree on. And then it's 20. But even that recognition, it's not you're 100% different to me. It's, it's only the 20%. Well, then that, even in and of itself, the impact of that is huge. Because the feedback comes back. Yeah. Yeah, you know, 80% of people like this. Oh, brilliant. So everybody's like that. And that feedback loop of other people in, let's just say WA, uh, other people in WA who I have not met are generally 80% in agreement with me. Well, that's cool. So it means when I go out to the coffee shop or bar or walk along the beach, then I know that the stranger I'm about to bump into and have a chat with is 80% in agreement with me. So there's so much that we can talk about and share and build a friendship off. Yeah. Now, this is where other factors come into it. I, I totally agree that if we mm. were to walk out the front door here, that chances are the first 10 people that we would meet would all be really nice people who we would get along with. We would mm. have differences of opinion on things, but mm. we would- 20%. Yeah, we would most likely say, those people are good people that I would be able to sit down and have a conversation with and mm. probably work, given, given the right resources and time and tools that we'd be able to figure out mm. how to live harmoniously together. Yeah. Now, an issue that we have is, and, I, and it, we're seeing it now play out in Australia and across the world, is the role of media in influencing what people That's perceive. Part. Yes. Because like, we are at, we are all human. Mm. We have evolved from you know from where we've evolved and not too long ago we were you know we were out in forests foraging for food and evading animals and trying to stay alive and we are wired to you know to pay a lot of attention to things that we think are dangerous. Mm. Now, the, the reality is in, the, in where we live here in Perth, Western Australia, yeah. we live in probably one of the safest places in the world. Mm. Right? And for an awful lot of people who live in Western, in, let's say, Western type countries, you are safe. Yeah. Like you are safe from that kind of existential 
you know, you're not yeah. going to be attacked by an animal. But nonetheless, we still have the same brains that our ancestors had. And, and this is kind of my sense-making point as well, that we still wired up the threats, scanning the environment, yeah. are, are complex. And, you know, the media plays on that and puts forward fear-based stuff, which just get a free pass into our heads. Yeah. Now, but but what what we have to think about here is like why does the like why does the media do yeah. this? And it's very simple. Yeah. Profit motive. Indeed. The 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 business model has been get people's attention mm-hmm. onto something, and those eyeballs, the time that people spend looking at this, can be converted into uh, into space that we can sell to advertisers. Yes. Simple as that. Simple. And we have we have accepted that model as a standard business practice, but now we've gotten to the point where, you know, the val like the, the dollar values associated with advertising are so huge that it creates perverse incentives for people to go, well, I know that the amount of bad news in the world is actually really, really small, but if we want to hook people's attention in, this is what we have to show them because they're way more likely to pay attention to this than to that. Yes. And our business model means that we have to get their attention, so therefore we're going to we're going to show this to them. Now, we have we as a collective have the right to kind of stand around and go, "Hey, you know the way, you know the way like we have this media system or this kind of a this yeah, yeah thing that The purpose of which we want to use to keep us informed of things that are happening outside of our sphere of knowledge. Has has everybody noticed how that system has kind of, you know, become a little bit, that the incentives have become a little bit perversed here and we're actually not getting the outcomes that we want from it. Hey, why why don't we have a conversation collectively about changing changing the way that this model operates because yeah. when it comes down to it do you know who's in charge we're in charge the people who live here yes but we have you know over time the power and influence of media networks to shape mm. the narratives and the information that's pumped into society has given them a very you know a very strong basis upon which to work from and resist any of these sorts of changes but we're at that point now like mm. people were pointing it out a few years ago uh, what was happening but you can tell people what's happening, but until it's happened, yes. they won't acknowledge it. Until it's felt and embodied. Yeah. And now we're at a point where people have truly felt the consequences of this, you know, with, you know, with Facebook, with Twitter, with social media, mm. with news organizations in general, the way that they've optimized their content for, you know, for clicks. Yes. And we're at a point now where we can go, hey, who is this working for? Yeah. And the people who will put up their hands will be the ones who own media. The media companies will go, hey, this is working for us. We're making lots and lots of money. And everyone else will go, it's not working for us. I think, we, it, I think it's time we change the laws in this regard. And the interesting thing about what you're proposing there is because how do we make, where's the primary source we make sense of the world? It's from the information we consume, which is now generally on our phone, from news social media, et cetera, et cetera. So that and the algorithm then starts giving us the sort of sense of, well, this is what my feed is telling me. So that's what most people must be thinking. You know, you, and the great example is, you know, over in the States, 
one person can open up their feed and see cops beating up black people and then another person can open the phone and they see black people beating up cops and it's like you know and, and both will think that they're seeing this you know what they're seeing is seen by everybody and it's not so specific so you we almost get isolated and played off by the content that's specifically sent to us whereas what you're suggesting here is is not just not just um, my opportunity to shape and influence um, legislation in the way that, that, that things are decided upon, but I also then get the feedback of just how many other people feel like me. And it's interesting what I found this year in particular with all the changeability in the background of you know, COVID and everything that that's brought, is that it's interesting. Not many people will say, oh yeah, the, yeah, I fucking hate the news or something like that. But if I open up the conversation, then invariably people will drop out the same stuff. And so a lot of people are just looking for that gateway or that feedback to just feel a little bit more confident about owning their own view and philosophy on the world, um, but also wanting to see if it's shared as well, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's why often we will keep a lot of our interior philosophy values to ourselves because we don't know whether it's shared, we don't want to be derided and this, that and the other. And some of the feedback from you know, algorithms on social media might suggest that other people are doing it a different way. And you're like, okay, so I'll go like that, which is why we end up with a lot of cognitive dissonance. So the more we talk, the more I can see how this almost provides um, benchmark feedback well, on where other people that I think are like me but actually they are actually like me mm. a lot more like me than I anticipated which means that I can chill out in the world more because there's less threats because that dude down the road who might look scary because he wears blacks and got a lot of tattoos or and, and a strange beard and all this sort of stuff, he's actually got the same views as me. Um, and so I can comfortably go across the road and have a, a chat and engage him on things that are possibly more meaningful than just, did you see the footy last night? I, on, on that. Do you see where I'm going? Uh, and you, I'm playing with yeah. what you're saying. To an extent, I think the, this. I, one of the things as well is that all of these, all of these views. I can, we'll say you and I, for example. I, mm. I look at you and I will make judgments as to what I think it is that you think, yes. or what it is you believe. I'm probably wrong mm. about all of that stuff. Uh, view like views change over time, like mm. and. So, in terms of this feedback thing, like one of the things that we have to encourage people to do more is to be, is to change their mind and yes. to admit that they're wrong. Yes. Like we, ha we, we create this terrible burden of shame around being making, wrong. being wrong, which yes. is ridiculous. You must be right. You must know the thing. Always be correct. Don't look stupid. Don't look daft. I've talked about this a lot and yeah. people's addiction to knowing things and addiction to being right. I, one of my, one of the things that I always set out to do is I, I try to find out, I want to be proven wrong. I want to find out that I have been completely wrong on something. 
Yes. Because that, that is where the opportunity for a whole new world yes. to open up exists. If I go about my life just seeking out people and information that reinforce the beliefs that I have, yes, it might give the, the belief structure that I have more solidity. It might make it it might make me believe that it's more solid and mm. permanent than it is. But everything is, you know, is impermanent, like over the longest yeah. periods. And I want to find out in my lifetime all the things that I'm wrong about. Yes. And you know, I, I'm not gonna say I'm unique in that regard. There's loads of people like, like that, but culturally, and you, you see this, you see this play out time and time again, that people are people are made fun of. For, for being wrong on things. Yeah. And it starts in it starts in school. Yep. You know, where people are told, you got you're bad for getting that wrong. As mm. opposed to, you know, we should be saying, okay, you have that view. Why did you like what was it? What's the journey that brought you to, to there? That. Like, and this is where it comes back to teaching like, we incentivize people having people having the answer that the people around them want to hear. Correct. as opposed to incentivizing people to think, to get the answer that is most appropriate for their environment. Hmm. Most, this is a sweeping generalization, but a large amount of sales and marketing now is based on selling predictable outcomes, where the outcome is not as predictable. But the fact that I will turn up and say, in eight weeks, I can take you from here to here if you come on my course or do my thing or this, that, and the other. And I give you a predictable outcome. And you're, you know, in, in a world that's not so predictable, that's lovely. So I'll buy that nice bit of comfort, safety, and certainty. Mm. Is that similar to what you're saying? Yeah, it, it is because that, that plays into I'll have the answers, I'll have the right answers. Yeah. But in my view, you don't want the right answers as much as you want to be pointed in the right direction. Mm. And it's the journey that you go on to get to the, mm. the right answer. But here's the thing, every single right answer or every single fact that we currently have will be superseded by a more accurate fact. Every fact that has ever existed in history yes. has proven to be incorrect. Yes. And we would be foolish to think that the set of facts that we currently hold and give such reverence to, to think that they will stand the test of time for infinity is absolutely ridiculous. Bonkers. But if you were to look around at the way that we have discussions and talk about things, you would believe, like you'd be led to believe that there is a set of things, a set of artifacts called the facts. Yes. And things that sit inside this set are defined, they're wholly objective and accessible as objective to people. Yes, which is another stand the test of time. Yeah, and complete. that's all complete rubbish. The reality is everything that you think you know yeah. is probably wrong. And the sooner that you accept that, the sooner you can open up to, mm. okay, what might be more accurate? And even then, the more accurate realization that you come to is still probably wrong. It's still not the yeah. objective truth. It might edge you closer to some understanding or realization. Mm. But chances are you're wrong. And it's and, and the, the challenges that life present um, are fluid and changeable. So therefore what did work last week will not work this week if certain key factors have moved during the course of time. And back to your point, you know, 
there's a guy that I listen to from time to time, Daniel Schmachtenberger, who, who said once, I love this, um, he said, if I think of the beliefs that I've held in the past, I look back at them, it's a bit like, you know, when you see, a, you see yourself when you're 20 and you look at your haircut and you just go, what did, what did I think I looked like at that point? As you look back at your haircut and you can look back at some of the beliefs that you've held in the past and go, crikey, I was like full into that. And then that moved on and this, that, and the other. But you come to now and you take an audit of what you believe in at this given point. And then you go, right, based on the, based on the, the knowledge now that there's beliefs that I've held at different points in time, that I thought were 100% correct, but turned out to be wrong. Which are the beliefs that I'm holding right now that are likely to go to be proven wrong the quickest? And if you do the audit, it's difficult to do. It is. It's difficult to do. And it's but then that then just by even thinking that and then having a crack at it, and then you get to this strangely omnipotent place where it's like, well, no, all of mine are correct. Mm. And that's <laughs> that's the dangerous place. I, I, I would agree. It's it's hard to do, and it's especially hard if you don't try and test those ideas and you yes. don't engage with with people who disagree with you mm. and you know this is where the whole you know back to the social media like the filter bubble yes. concept and people just surrounding themselves with ideas mm. that that are aligned with their own uh, you know that's that's unlikely to help you break out of any constraining paradigms of thought mm. and and this is where this is where i see disagreement in society is a really healthy aspect yes. of society. So going back to what you spoke earlier about around, you know, oh, people might go to McDonald's yes. and so forth. And I go, that's fine. People will disagree on what it is is the best life hmm. that's possible. But in time, like people who are eating McDonald's every day will come to but they will come to a realization. Hmm. And then the other words that I or use a lot they won't and then they won't be here. Yeah, but it's about, it's about responsibility. Correct. And people can assume responsibility or, or decide, I'm not going to assume responsibility. Yes. And I, I believe that I would rather, I would rather have a, a society or a system that optimized for, for freedom and responsibility Yes. Than trying to protect people from bad things. And the lowest because, common denominator. Because no matter what it is we think is bad, again, we're probably wrong. Yeah. You know, yes, it is probably bad in that it will reduce life expectancy or we'll be able to come to some mm. agreement as to what bad is. But I think that the having like optimizing for, as I said, for freedom, experimentation, people to try different things, and even if I don't like it and I disagree with it. I, for me, that's much. I, I would much rather that than a system or a society that says these things are absolutely not allowed, uh, and we're we're going to protect you from yourself, yeah. because it's only a matter of time. Like those those systems are what uh, I, I describe them as anti-fragile. Yes. Or no, that those systems are fragile. Sorry. And a system that allows experimentation and people to make bad decisions and mm. correct their bad decisions is anti-fragile. Yes. Uh, and that term you probably know was coined by uh, Nicholas Taleb in his books, uh, the, the Incerto series of books, where he talks about, yeah, if you try to protect a system from the bad things, 
It's yeah. only a matter of time before something that you didn't predict as being bad destroys the whole system. Correct. Instead, we should detect it. Yeah, and the same the same thing goes for you know this is a an opinion uh, that might divide people around you know around child rearing, for example, where. I, and I say this as somebody who doesn't have children, so mm. it's very easy to say this. But I would much rather encourage children to go out into the world, experiment, you know, take risks, learn mm. about, you know. But obviously, a good parent won't just let them take, you know, uh, unconstrained risks where they risk their lives. But mm. allow kids to, you know, figure out what the boundaries are, you know, yeah. to fall, hurt, get yeah. that feedback from what 100%. it means to push yourself too far. Otherwise, if you create this society, if you try to rear children, and I just use this example because I think it applies more You're generally, correct. that if you try to protect children from the things that might harm them, there is a point in, there is a point in their lives when you won't be able to protect them anymore. Yeah. And they won't know what to do. Yes. And the consequences of they that are- They won't know how to cross the road. Yeah. And that's, that's a much more dangerous thing to try and optimize for than you know, allowing kids to run wild, run wild, but you know, to yeah. to go out there and experiment, mm. and as I said, get that feedback from the world, to test mm. reality, lean into it, and find out, find out what, what holds up, what's too far, you know, what can I push further with? Mm. And so, so that's where I disagree with the idea about, you know, oh, we should, we should ban, McDo- you know, don't get me wrong, like if, if we were to ban McDonald's, for example, uh, like it wouldn't be the end of the world, we'd figure out, but, as a, mm. but just as a general working yeah. principle, the idea of banning things that people Having still believe they want yeah. won't work because no. we haven't, they haven't gotten the feedback from reality as to why that's bad, they'll seek out a similar bad thing and the process will continue. We'd be much better off saying, eat McDonald's, uh, yeah. See how you feel. Yeah. Is this how you want to live your life? Mm. If yes, there you go. That you're free mm. to do that. But if you eat McDonald's continuously and you get to a point where your health isn't where you want it to be, here is access to information where you can update update what you believe about what a, a healthy diet is. Yeah. And then it's up to you to then go back out into your reality and test and find out what works. And again, it's that feedback mechanism. Mm. that you have to allow the feedback mechanism to work because if you just ban McDonald's, you've disrupted the feedback mechanism. Yeah. The same behaviors and incentives still exist. So, I, yeah, I say mm. let, let the systems be as, as open as possible while maintaining you know, the shared values that we have about what the good life represents and ensuring that we don't turn off the lights in the process. And we'll figure it out. Yes. Because one of the catchphrases I use all the time, it comes from a book by a, uh, a British theoretical physicist called David Deutsch. And some of my friends will make fun of me for referencing David Deutsch again, because it, it's, I, I, he's somebody I, I, I quote a lot because yeah. I found his books to be very interesting. But he, he sums it up in this. He says, problems are inevitable. Correct. All problems can be solved and solutions create new problems. Mm-hmm. And the cycle continues. And when I, when I heard it so succinctly put, I was like, yes, of course. Like, we, we spend so much of our, tra- of our time, like we all acknowledge prob- you know, problems exist. Yes, everyone will agree on that. 
all problems can be solved. This is one that people don't often agree with. And where I ask them to consider is, if given enough time and resources, could that problem be solved? And the answer is always yes. Yes. If given enough time and resources, and if it's made a priority, the problem can be solved. Yes. And then, no matter what solution you create, it will, there will be more problems that come from it. And what I find really interesting about that is we get trapped in this idea of thinking that, yes, the problems exist. Okay, there's solutions. But we forget that the solutions that we create is not going to create this steady state of equilibrium, peace mm. for everybody, and the universe just kind of reaches this state of balance where nothing is out anymore. It just it brings us another step up on this journey. Yes. And so, as such, like knowing that and kind of believing something like that, I I revel in the problems, and the fact that what that the the work that we're trying to do with Flux, mm. like we see it as one of like, we're not we're not trying to bite off a small little problem here. Like what we're talking about is quite big, but no we have systemic problem. But we have an approach where we can do it in small incremental steps. But that's the beauty. All we're doing is trying to solve problems. And as soon as we make progress on one problem, there's going to be another one right there. Yeah. And the sooner that people become comfortable with the idea of there will always be problems, there will always be solutions, mm. and there will always be problems, you know, we can relax into that and go, oh, okay, what problems am I going to focus on today? Yes. Have a go fixing it. So, looking forward to the election in March, where, where is flux in relation to its offering at that point in time at the yeah. moment we will be we will be participating in the in the wa state election and we will have uh, we're working on working on things at the moment that will be kind of making a little bit more solid and concrete uh, for people but a core part of our campaign will center around the launch of like the first version of the app that we're launching for people called Digipol. And it will be available for free in the, in the Apple and Android yeah. stores. And it will be a, an app that give, it, it will be the first step on this journey of giving people a tool to interface with the legislation that exists in Parliament yeah. and giving them the opportunity to express their support mm. or opposition to that. And, you know, just getting comfortable with the idea of being an active, or at least you know, at least a participant, or somebody who has the potential to be a participant in this sort of ecosystem. So we will be running, we will be running a campaign. Uh, we will be quite active and and vocal in that regard, and we'll be trying to get as many people as possible to download the app, have a look at how it works, mm -hmm. think about is this is this something that they want to participate in? I. I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that democracy only works when people participate. Yes. And the more actively, when I say active participation, it, again, it doesn't necessarily mean being involved on every single bill and every single issue, yeah. but it means being there, like turning up. And currently, like turning up on election day is a great way to participate in democracy. Yeah. And we're saying that there's, you know, we can open the door a little bit wider. You can participate more frequently, more dynamically, more like with a greater, uh, a greater degree of focus on the things that matter to you. Mm. And we're going to be trying to 
you know, elevate the conversation around what are the issues that matter to to people and we believe like, we believe that one of the sets of issues that really matters to people at this moment in time that isn't been handled very well uh, relates to climate issues yes and so we will have a big aspect of our campaign that will be around like drawing attention to how climate issues are being addressed are being looked at addressed managed by by us as a as a mm. collector so that will form a core part of what it is we're going to be going to uh, going to bring to the election but also it will be there will be a big focus on getting people comfortable with the tool yep. and the first version that's available now in the app store it's what we call an open beta so it's still a test version that we've just released we've been testing it with uh with testers for the last few months we're now opening it up to people people more widely mm -hmm. it's not the end product it really is just kind of a a showcase of mm. this is the sort of functionality that you'll be able to use mm. we will be we're going to be releasing the functionality in a staged approach to kind of we want to reduce the barrier to entry as much as possible up front make it really easy for anybody to just download have a quick look a scroll click through and yeah. as the needs dictated so hopefully when we get someone elected into parliament we'll then start uh, you know, we'll start turning on all of the other functionality that becomes more important in relation to how you authenticate mm. users who are participating in it and so forth. Yeah. Awesome. The last question I ask all my guests, it's a hypothetical one, but I always enjoy listening to the answer, is um, if you could take, if you could pose one question and pop it into the collective consciousness so everybody can sat quietly and considered it for 10 minutes, what would that be? I would ask, I would like for everybody to think, to, to think on this one question, how can I help? Hmm. And I would leave the question that that's I would leave the I would leave it at that because yeah. different people would then frame it in their own way, mm. and some people would go. They might go, "How can I help myself? How can yeah. I make my? How can I help my family? How that can I help is. my community?" And it would be open-ended enough for everybody to find something that they could relate to. But I think that that's that, that is the question that I would. That I would like people to consider because you know, back to what we were I, I truly believe that people are fundamentally good like my I'm very fortunate in that my life experience has reinforced that that belief and I am not I'm not a naive Pollyanna to think that there is no bad people in the world there are absolutely are and there are real and present dangers to to people's well-being across a variety of uh, you know in a variety of places and spaces but generally people are good and I do believe that people want to people want to express themselves and you know there's so much research that indicates that one of the greatest feelings that we can possibly have is helping other people and doing acts of charity and mm. you know and I, I firmly believe that to be true and I think that if more people 
took the time to consider for themselves, like, how can I help? How can I contribute? That that would open up a door for so many other good things to, to come from it. And, and it's also a question that is, it's not, it's not bounded. There's no, there's no right answer to it. There's no, and there isn't really a wrong answer. You know, mm. it, and it just, it opens up doors for everybody to just think about, think about what it is they're currently doing. Because I often think, you know, something I think about quite often is, you know, th things like legacy and like, well, what, what do we leave behind? Like, and how will we be remembered? And like, I don't really care so much about, you know, how I'll be remembered or how, because we'll all be forgotten. And the yes. greatest times, we'll all be forgotten. But I do like to think about, you know, while, while we're here, what can we do? What can we do? And even, even if it's as simple as planting a tree, mm. like going to, a, going to a store, getting seeds for a tree, and going somewhere and planting a tree, you have, without a doubt, made the world a better place yes. in doing something that simple. simple. And, mm. it's, and it's even more simple than that. It's when you see someone on the street, and if you just smile at a stranger, you have made, you have helped the world by doing that. Mm. And so that's what I would say, how can I help? Love it. I've really enjoyed today. Cool, really likewise. enjoyed the conversation. It's been fun. It's been fun to dive in. I think I said before we started this, it's so easy at the moment to pick holes in things like capitalism, democracy, but then not engage in the answer. And then, he, and sometimes even if you do uh, pick holes in it, then it's easy for others to just flick and go, oh, "What does that mean? You're a communist or a socialist or something, whatever." You know what I mean? Um, but to actually discuss of how can we upgrade, how can we move forward, what does the new framework look like to solve today's problems, which inevitably will become not solving the following problems, like you've said but at least it will solve today's problems. So it's been great to get in a space and dive into that, which um, I super appreciate. If people want to find you, where do they find you? They can find me on, you can find me on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like Twitter. Uh, you can find me at okdahi, so yeah. O-K-D-A-I-T-H-I. Yeah. Uh, but I'd also, I'd encourage people to check out our, like, where we are, uh, VoteFlux. Yeah. So VoteFlux.org yeah. is where is our main website. We're also active on on Discord. If people want to get involved, you can. But all of the information you'll find on the VoteFlux website. Yeah. And anything that's relevant to me and the stuff that I'm interested in, uh, if you go to my Twitter, you'll find some web pages and the sort of stuff that I rant about <laughs> right. all the time. Indeed. Dai, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.